Hello and welcome to Film Festival Reviews, a place where independent filmmakers and film lovers stop by and listen in on what's happening with indie films on the film festival circuit worldwide. This is Christina Kotlar, your host, and I've been out and about Tribeca Film Festival throughout Manhattan, mainly around the Union Square American Express Insider Lounge, where I met quite a few filmmakers who stopped in and stayed around when the conversations got to be good. The topic was music, musicians, how music connects people in this crazy world we live in. I don't know how this progressed, but eventually I was asked to see a public screening of a film, and I, at the time, I didn't quite get the name of it. But since I'd much rather watch a film with a real audience, because this year we weren't able to request tickets until the end of the week, and only had press and industry screenings available, in any case, I did get to see some interesting and really well done films, a few that left me in a contemplative state of mind, and another that had me humming the music from the soundtrack. This one especially made its mark, Playing for Change, Peace Through Music, a feature documentary and world premiere directed by Jonathan Walls and Mark Johnson. It was written in the um, in the description paragraph, when you play on the street, you play to the world. This came from a street performer in this inspiring tribute to the unifying power of music. And I certainly felt that inspiration. Here's a conversation with Mark Johnson during the last couple of days of Tribeca. Enjoy the show. All right. So I'm with Mark Johnson right now, and uh, Jonathan Walls, your co-director and partner in crime here. You know, right. for the music. Um, this is uh, called "Playing for Change." Peace through music. Peace through music, and right. I would go to some press screenings, but I prefer to see films with a real audience. And the one that I did go see, which was this past Tuesday, you had a standing ovation. You know, people were just applauding after every song, and I'm not really sure how many you had, but you had Stand By Me, you had One Love, and these are songs that are, it seemed to be universally recognized. Yeah. I mean, was that something that surprised you when you started out? With it, this? it did surprise me. We picked those songs more for the message than for the fame factor of them. So just figuring if the world could stand by each other and if the world could realize that we share one love, that that would be the most important thing we could get out of this. So we sort of use those songs as symbols. And then also the weight of the, how popular they are around the world really helped us. You know, I remember in northern India, in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives, they had a music store outside and they had all these Tibetan CDs and then right in the middle was Bob Marley. And that's when I realized that he has just reached everybody, you know, and he's always been one of my musical heroes just for the simplicity of how much he's able to inspire everybody. Now, how did this all get started? I know it's uh, it's been around uh, a little bit. I've, I've checked um, a little bit about the, the foundation that mm -hmm. you started. It's Playing Through Change Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have a short documentary first? Did you start with just one song? How did How did it become this... World, you know, wide phenomenon. Well, it, it started with just the idea that, you know, how can you make a project that inspires everybody? And in order to do that, you know, we couldn't make music about one specific location because then it would be genre specific. 
and we didn't want to just include one type of location in the world because then it would be their culture, their um, economics, gender, their their religion, their concept. We wanted it to be everybody. So we just realized that in order to do that, we have to go around the world and we have to get as many people as possible um, talking about music, playing their own music, and then unifying them together on these songs around the world, which is what Stand By Me and One Love are, where each song has over 35 musicians around the world that have never met playing in their own environments. So it started, uh, One Love we started in New Orleans uh, on a dobro or a steel guitar after Katrina, and that's how it became a blues gospel version because of the music influences down there, but also the feeling of the city at the time. Then we would go to a Zulu choir in South Africa, put headphones on them, and then they would sing on top of the track. And then we would go to Kathmandu, Nepal, and a tabla master would put headphones on, and he would hear the Zulu choir singing with the dobro, and he would play on top of that. So the, each musician's playing in their own natural environment, and the idea was to try to get as many of them together so we can inspire the planet to come together, start focusing on our connections instead of our differences. Did you think of this over a beer? <laughs> I no, mean, where I are mean, from really, I, I know people do have an ex- extraordinary experiences through music, mm-hmm. and you're from the music industry, right. so you probably have met very different people right. in the music uh, business. Right. But how did you come together with Jonathan and decide we're going to do this and you know put the pins in the the right. map on the wall of the world that this is where you're going to right. be going? Well, when I started out in New York City recording music at the Hit Factory. I mean, my, my, my job would, would be changing from one day working with Biggie Smalls and the next day Paul Simon. So the difference in music was so drastic. And then I just realized that all of their own inspiration that they have as artists, you know, is, is a universal thing. And it's not specific to the style of music, but actually to humanity. So that's when I started realizing that all these people share something. And I realized that I was in a unique situation to observe this sort of stuff. So then when I talked to Jonathan, who's an amazing filmmaker, he did a lot of the filming as well as the editing with me and co-directing. We just sort of said to each other, well, start here in the U.S. and let's start to, you know, what had happened was also that I'd worked for a long time for Jackson Brown. And he had been an amazing mentor to me and is a big mentor to this project. And a lot of the locations we would go to were places that he had told me about. So he had told me about Barcelona and about the amazing celebration of music that goes on there with all these different cultures. And then he had told me about the importance of music down in the townships of South Africa. And so that was sort of a starting point. And then um, it it originally started in Los Angeles when I heard a guy singing, Roger Ridley singing the song Stand By Me. And I mean, I, I could still hear him when I was two blocks away. His voice was so powerful. And then it just occurred to me that that's what music is. What this guy has is what music is, and this will be a great way to start off a project. So a couple of days later, John and I showed up with some cameras and recording equipment and recorded Roger and interviewed him, and then realized that we now could take the track Stand By Me with us around the world. And we just started mapping out locations, and I would sit at home a lot of times at night and just check out the internet and find all different styles of music around the world and just think what would be interesting connections that I'd never heard before. You know, um, a sitar and a dobro, they, I've rarely ever heard them together, if ever, but they have a very similar aesthetic in the tone that they create. So I thought, well, that would be an amazing idea. Let's go to New Orleans and let's go to the Far East and let's get some sitar players. And then we'll connect the two of them. And it just sort of fed off itself. Once we would go to one place, we would then get turned on to music from another location and then we would continue on. Well, 
all the artists also just seemed so excited about the project <laughs> as well. You could you could feel their enthusiasm. And one of the things that I really liked was, I don't think it was the New York subway. It was in a subway station, and then you had an audience around there. Yeah, in know? Barcelona. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Uh, and actually, the funny story of that was that when I was, uh, Jonathan. Kevin Krupitzer, who's our cinematographer, and I were recording a concert in Amsterdam. And I said, guys, let's go down to Barcelona and take a train, and let's start the project down there in Europe. And as soon as we got off the train, we'd never been above ground yet. Within 20 seconds of walking off the train, we saw that orchestra playing. And so we literally filmed it before we even went above ground. And that was a funny thing because they were Russian musicians and they didn't speak any English and we didn't know how to communicate with them and so we just sort of subtly started setting up microphones and smiling and you know just so that I could at least capture the moment it's always better to capture the moment and deal with the consequences later so then when they started telling them about the project a lot of it we had to get a translator that spoke Russian Spanish and English so it was a three-way conversation between us and those artists and then they they got really into the project and that's when we knew that we were really on to something. You know, that that's the other thing I think I, I really liked about it is all the, the different languages that mm -hmm. it just it just went across all the cultures and and you've shown this at a couple of festivals already. No, this is, is the world premiere this here. This is in the Tribeca. world premiere. Yeah. But did you try something else earlier? Did you try some a film? Some, yeah. Yeah, in two thousand four we did a film called Playing for Change, Cinematic Discovery of Street Musicians. And that was in Los Angeles, New Orleans, pre-Katrina, and New York City. And we traveled all around the cities with, back then, you know, technology wasn't as good, so we had giant rigs of recording equipment, at the time powered by golf cart batteries, which are quite heavy. And we would, and then through that process, we just, you know, one day we were recording a 14-year-old jazz virtuoso trumpet player on the, in Santa Monica, California. And we said to him, you know, what inspired you to play music? And it turned out that it was a deaf trumpet player in Venice Beach. A deaf trumpet player can barely, you know, he really can't play the trumpet. Every now and then he hits a note. But, you know, it was the perseverance. Like, it, you know, the kid said, the kid's name is Chance Powell. And he said, you know, if this guy can go out there every day and do this, then so can I. And him and his mother, they were really struggling. They had no money. And he ended up getting a really great thing going and got a big record deal to Universal for like a million dollar record deal as a result of being involved with pursuing his dreams, which was inspired by a deaf trumpet player. And it just occurred to us that we, really there are so many human stories out there that would supersede anybody breaking down, you know, trying to put us in, um, in different groups and, you know, just that the, it's the human stories. That's something that affect the human race. And that's what we really wanted to go out and find. So that film spawned this film. And I th really think you did find those human stories in this film, and bringing it to New York as the world premiere was that a planned strategy for you, or is it you know? No, I mean you know. To be honest with you, when you look at the, the the film festival circuit, and then we saw this one, and the concept of why they started this one after 9/11, and it's Robert De Niro, and it's in New York City, which is best city in the world in my you know my home you know I grew up 20 minutes from New York City and just it has everybody represented in this city so such an international city so it just seemed like a perfect place to do something like this so when we got accepted you know we'd just been scrambling around and locked ourselves in a room just to make sure that we brought with us the best thing we could but yeah this was the dream film festival for us and 
And I think you had the dream audience also. Yeah. Well, so far, all the audiences have been really incredible. And it's funny because when you make a film like this, you end up editing in a little room with a little box, you know, maybe like, you know, six by six inches wide. And then suddenly you're sitting in a packed movie theater with a big movie screen and watching it. And it was, you know, at first it's terrifying, but then it just becomes so gratifying to be able to have gone on all those journeys, each one with a million struggles that that we had to overcome in order to make it work. And then also we kind of feel like we're representing all these people. You know, so it becomes very important a film like this. It's not about John and myself. It's about all the other people and and their families and their kids. And suddenly it becomes a really important thing that you just want to make sure it gets represented the right way. And then to see the crowd respond like that, I mean, it was the most amazing feeling I've ever had. What was the, the biggest technical struggle that you had to deal with? Um, I think that, well, there were a number of them, but, but well, one would be filming in the Himalayan mountains because to get our recording equipment there and then, you know, we would finally find a location and it would be in the middle of a mountaintop and then some guy would be banging on some, you know, some construction work at the bottom of the mountain and we would just constantly hear this long echo bang and then we realized, okay, we can't do it here. So then we'd go to another spot and then there would be a million cicadas, you know, those those bugs. And then they would just be making this this sheet of noise. I but, know, but that's music also. Right, and then we realized that, okay, well, let's just let that be part of the sound. And it actually turned out better than had they not been there. It added sort of this Pink Floyd element to the recording. Or the ambiance of that, the ambiance of that background, of, of, the of, the background. The, of the environment, the natural environment. Right. Oh, that's interesting. And maybe the hardest one of all to record was the Manu Chao performance in Barcelona because it was pouring rain. And if you do see the film and you see me holding a wine bottle, it's not that I'm drinking out of the wine bottle. It's that I duct taped a microphone to the wine bottle and used that to record the performance. But most people, they don't see the microphone, they just see the wine bottle. But, yeah, that was a difficult one as well. Well, I think getting through all the airport security with these right, uh, right. these items you know, that look like weapons. Right, that was amazing. They, they, yeah, they always thought that I had guns because I'd have all these little packs of different sort of gadgets that went with the recording. And, you know, I remember learning a long time ago the concept of two positives before a negative is always going to make people listen. And I remember at the Kathmandu airport when I dropped my microphone stand bag on their scale and it went to the top and just was pinned at the top like they'd never had they didn't even have a scale that could handle the weight that I was trying to bring in so I said I love you I love your country now please let me on the plane you know and, and they, that let kinda, you they let me on the plane oh you're lucky right no we and we oftentimes yeah, had to, to check our, that we had to check expensive equipment and just sort of hope that it made it as well yeah keep your fingers crossed and we had some cameras stolen and recording equipment stolen but I mean it's just about persevering through it uh, documentary filmmakers, it's always like that. Well, I kind of like what was happening there, too. You did cut through some of the uh, shots of you working uh-huh. there, seeing you uh, actually doing the filming and recording. So, right. so that it's almost like one of those road trip films. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you get to join us in the journey around the world and record the musicians, learn a little about them, and then to see the connection that we all have. Well, that really is a dedication on your part. Uh, what about the rest of your life? You know, family, friends, you know, they say, just send us a well, now, I, now I, yeah, I mean, everybody was just so supportive of the project. And my partner, um, my business partner, uh, Whitney Burdett, she is the um, co-creator with me and the executive producer. And she just had so much belief in what we were doing that her and Dave Bacon, another executive producer, 
and then Joel and Jeremy Gould are two brothers that are producers in the film. They all just believe so much that they would give us a lot of freedom to go off and do this. And I would make sure I bring back a lot of foreign gifts for my family and friends to, so that they would remember me when I came back six months later. And, uh, you know, but also it's more about the friends we made along the way, you know. Every morning I get a phone call from a Tibetan child that I sponsor, you know. The only English sentence he knows is today is going to be a great day. Oh, and, so, and then we just sort of sit there on the phone after that because there's nothing else we can say to each other. But it's the greatest thing is just remembering all these people and realizing that the global family that we were able to make. I found out about you guys through your co-producer, Doug Kenny. Doug Kenny, yes. yes. Doug Kenny, amazing, amazing. We just started talking. He was sitting there just ready to leave. And I walked in and we just started talking about some things. And he told me, he goes, please come to this screening tomorrow. And I'm really happy I got to see you with the audience. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor that you came. There's not a lot of films that really make me feel that emotion, you know, just really come, come bubbling out of me. But I, I, <laughs> I couldn't help it with this one. And it's amazing how, how music does you know, bring out that emotion in you. You know, it was an incredible, moving experience. Thank you so much. You know, you you have one more screening. Yeah, tonight. And that's going to be the audience. That's going to determine the audience award. Is that right? It? We're we're in the we're in the you're in the running. We're in the running. That's great. I yeah. hope you guys uh, really do well with that. And what's your next uh, film festival? Where are you going to go next? Um, I'm not really sure. Um, we've been accepted to a couple of film festivals. Which ones? Uh, well, we just got a call yesterday about the Maui Film Festival. Oh, how nice. And we got accepted to the Warsaw Film Festival. And we are we're talking to the Jerusalem Film Festival. And uh, then we'll just keep on going from there. And then we started our next project as well, Playing for Change from Pieces to Peace countries in conflicts with each other singing songs together, Israeli-Palestinian children singing together, musicians from the Congo and Zimbabwe singing together. And the idea is to just keep this movement going until everybody's represented and inspired to help us in this concept of you know, coming together as a human race. So you have something that's going to keep you busy for a long, long time. Yeah, I hope so. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And thank and you so much for your time. For, and thanks for taking the time here, and uh, I can't wait to see the next film. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Okay, there you have it. Both Mark and Jonathan were so good during the Q&A, and I've seen interviews on the internet from Tribeca Film Festival, so I think they played their premiere card perfectly, and doing so in your hometown is one of the best ways to premiere because you'll have your home crowd rooting for you, and they always root for the home team. Definitely the way to go here. I have one small gripe with not the festival itself, but with the graphic designers having been one in my past life. I think this year's program booklet did a disservice, albeit not on purpose, to many filmmakers and their films by using unreadable colors and type size to make the text fit into a pocket-sized printed piece, but making it almost impossible to read especially in the dim lights when the theaters go dark or if you're on the subway and it's moving around, you cannot read this. And my philosophy is, if I can't read it, I don't buy it. Too bad, the uh, full-size programs were better. Readable descriptions made me want to see the films. I didn't always have time to go online, so this one printed piece would have been more valuable to me than anything else. The other thing was the awards ceremony that took place on Thursday evening at the 
Tribeca Filmmaker Lounge. I didn't even know about it until the next day. And while there was still Friday, Saturday, and Sunday officially part of the festival, the party was well over and done with. A bit flat, that's all. Anyway, I am planning my next festival adventure and will be off to Cannes, this time for the first week during opening night and the crazy paparazzi weekend. It's all black tie and staying out late while seeing as many films as possible and getting around at the film market. So until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.